morning. My name's Chelsea Whithorn. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 40, 21 through 26. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Morgan. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 through 11. Brothers and sisters, I want to call your attention to the good news that I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand. You are being saved through it if you hold on to the message I preached to you, unless somehow you believed it for nothing. I passed on to you as most important what I also received. Christ died for our sins in line with the scriptures. He was buried and he rose on the third day in line with the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at once. Most of them are still alive to this day, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, as if I were born at the wrong time. I'm the least important of the apostles. I don't deserve to be called an apostle because I harassed God's church. I am what I am by God's grace, and God's grace hasn't been for nothing. In fact, I have worked harder than all the others. That is, it wasn't me, but the grace of God that is with me. So then, whether you heard the message from me or them, this is what we preach, and this is what you have believed. The word of the Lord. Hello. My name is Paul. Uh, please stand for the gospel reading found in Luke 1, 46 through 55. And Mary said... My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will, be called, will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The Gospel of the Lord. You remain standing as we pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and open our eyes that we would see Jesus. Come and open our ears that we would hear the word of God speaking to us. And come and open our hearts that we would love and serve and follow Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. 
A few years ago, when our two older kids were going through kindergarten, each of them, uh, in turn, uh, they played this game when they were in kindergarten. It's called What's in the Bag? And so they would bring in this brown paper bag, and you'd put an item in, and every kid had a turn when it was their uh, time to bring in the brown paper bag. And they'd bring in the brown paper bag, and there would be an object inside the bag, and then on the outside of the bag would be a letter that was the first letter of the object uh, inside the bag. And then there would be a little poem or a little clue that said what's in the bag. And so I remember, I think, for one of our kids, uh, we, we put uh, something in the bag, and we wrote the letter O on the outside, and our clue was, it's a color and a food, you know. And so, you know, some kid, I think, was like, an Oreo, you know. And he was really disappointed to open it up, he, you know, and, and find that it was an orange. Um, but, but the what's in the bag game is sort of what happens when we ask the question, what is it that Christians believe? What do Christians believe? Well, I don't know. Maybe if you go to this church, they say, what's in the bag over here? And if you've ever had the experience of trying to find a new church, sometimes you're thinking, okay, I'll read up on the website or whatever, but I just want to know, what do they believe? What do we believe? What do Christians believe? And everywhere you go, you might, it might feel like you're being handed a different bag. Oh, really? Well, here, here's this bag. And sometimes we start to add all the stuff to the bag and say, oh, you know what? To be a Christian, you've got to believe in this. You've got to believe in this. You've got to belong to this political party. You've got to have this uh, kind of opinion on this issue. You've got to believe in a young earth. You've got all of this stuff. And we put it all in the bag and we say, here you go. This is what's in the bag. This is Christianity. And someone says, no, wait a minute. I, I, I don't know if I'm with that. I, I don't know if I want to be that way. I don't know if I can believe that part of it or that part. And so they say, well, you can keep your bag. I'm not sure I want this Christian faith. What is it that Christians actually believe? In the early 2000s, there was a sociologist named Christian Smith who did a survey of America's religious youth. And so he found teenagers that identified, self-identified as being religious, believing in God, having a faith of some kind. And then he would ask them follow-up questions to see, okay, what is the nature of their belief? What, What is it that they believe in? And he came to discover that what they actually believed in was nothing like Christianity. And he came up with this phrase, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now some of you can parse out what that means by looking at at it a word at a time. But moralistic, you know, this is a God who really cares about how I behave. Don't be naughty, be nice, you know. This therapeutic, this is a God who just wants me to feel good about stuff in my life. Just likes me so much. And then deism, this is a God who's overall detached, distant, uninvolved, doesn't bring his will to bear upon this world. If you'd like, moralistic therapeutic deism is the belief in a God who's far away, who wants me to do good and feel good. This was the religion that he discovered. So like, this is sort of what describes it. And so in our world today, when there's a flurry of opinions and it's very hard to distinguish between popularity and credibility, when someone's got an amazing platform and a large amount of Twitter followings and can pull thousands of people to hear them speak, the question is always, well, I know they're popular, but are they credible? And how do I begin to sort that out? How do we decide? So we're doing a series today called, uh, we're beginning a series called We Believe In. And it's going to walk us through the Nicene Creed. It's going to walk us through it um, probably all the way to mid to late October. So we're going to be in this for a while. 
One of the reasons we're doing this is because you will, maybe you heard the phrase in our New Testament reading this morning where Paul says, I preach to you that which I also received. In other words, I received something and then I'm, and, and he's quick to add, I must have just been unlucky, born at the wrong time, you know, I'm the least of all the apostles. Nevertheless, I received it and so I'm passing it on to you. This is what faith is like. It's something that has been passed on to us. But what is it? How do we know that we've been handed the right thing versus someone else's bag of what they think belongs in the Christian faith? So we're doing this series on the Nicene Creed, and here's a little bit of background about the creed itself. The creed gets its name from the council at which it was formalized. The emperor Constantine formed a council, called a council in 325 in the city of Nicaea. And so this council of Nicaea first formularized this creed. Later in 381, under a different emperor, it's fleshed out just a little bit more. The the section on the Holy Spirit gets fleshed out just a little bit more. And it gets, and it's, it's remains in the form that we have it in today. Now, some people say, oh, Constantine, I've heard about him. The creed was just an instrument of political oppression. That he did this so that he could control the empire. And really, Christianity is all about political control. And it just so happened that Rome used it. And none of this stuff is really true. Have you heard that one? The thing is, these phrases from the creed actually show up very early. They show up in some of the earliest writings of the church fathers. A couple of names. Irenaeus, Ignatius, Justin Martyr, Tertullian. Different ones of these wrote letters demonstrating sometimes on their way to being martyred. They wrote a little thing saying, this is why I'm dying. My belief in God the Father. My belief that Jesus is the Son of God. My belief in the Spirit. In one or two of these early letters and early documents, and I'm talking like like early 100s, like a few decades after the birth of the church and all of that. In some of these, you, you begin to see the bullet point format of the creed. Something about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the church, and forgiveness of sins. Later on, this would get fleshed out. Now, why is this important? Because the Council of Nicaea doesn't make up the creed. They formalize the creed. They say, this is, this is the stuff. This is the stuff that Paul was even saying. In fact, many of the phrases are already there in the New Testament, if not most of the phrases. So sometimes the other objection to the creed is like from... If the objection that it was an instrument of sort of Roman political manipulation, if that comes from non-Christians, then maybe from other Christians they'd say, Brother Glenn, all we need is the Bible. Why do we need this creed, the, the words of men? Actually, the creeds are largely pulled from the words of the New Testament letters. Uh, many of these phrases, and we'll try to show some of them where they come from, Old Testament and New Testament. And the same council that formalized the creed is the same council that formalized the canon, i.e. what goes into the Bible. In other words, they, weren't, they didn't d- develop this as competing things or tradition. One is tradition and one is scripture. They said, no, no, listen, this is scripture. And how do we know what the core outline of what scripture teaches is? That's these statements that formed the creed. You may be interested to know that one of the... Christian teachers that began teaching a heresy as early as these, the, the 200s or 300s was a chap named Marcion. 
an unfortunate name, but Marcy, uh, Marcion began teaching that there was essentially two gods. There was the God of the Old Testament who created the material world, and he was kind of a junior God. And then the, the New Testament clearly showed us a more spiritual and sophisticated God. Now, Marcion developed this teaching from what he believed to be a literal reading of Scripture. You see, very early on, Christians began to realize we can't just give people the Bible and trust that they're going to come out all right. We've got to help them know this is the core of Christian faith. Stay within these bounds. It's like bumper lanes for kids bowling. You know, like, hey, don't go in the gutter over here or over here. This is what you need. And so a lot of the phrases that are in the creed are addressing different heresies. Next week, we're going to spend three weeks talking about Jesus because there's so much in the creed that was meant to address different heresies about Jesus saying, oh, he wasn't really a pre-existent, he was created, or he wasn't really human, he just appeared to be human. All of these different things that had to be sorted out in the first hundred years. And there was a clear understanding of what was being passed on, and then there was these fringe voices that needed to be sorted out. So we ought not pit the creed against Scripture. But let's take this question head on. Why does it matter? Why does the Nicene Creed matter? The first thing I want to say is that the creed can be an instrument of unity. It can be an instrument of unity. The Nicene Creed is the only statement of Christian belief that is accepted by the church in every stream, every stream of the body of Christ, non-denominational, denominational, Protestant, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, you name it, every stream of the body of Christ affirms the, the, the words of the Nicene Creed. Now, that's significant. Now, some of you might think, well, I don't know if I want to be lumped in with all of those guys. I mean, does the creed also, is the creed also sharp enough to exclude? Yes. Several years ago, I had um, an uncomfortable conversation with a very sweet couple uh, in my office who were Mormons, and they wanted to to serve, and I had to to speak with them, and and they said, well, we we believe New Life Statement of Faith. I said, well, actually, New Life Statement of Faith is the Nicene Creed, and I think we had just changed it. And they're like, oh, we we believe all of that. I said, well, I'm I'm not sure that you do. Oh, of course we do. Of course, we're all all about it. I said, well, do you mind if we go through just a few sections? And we got to the part where it talked about Jesus not being a created being, and they got kind of quiet, and they're like, yeah, we don't actually believe it. Right. And then we got to the part where it said he has spoken through the prophets, past tense, that the canon is closed. And they're like, oh, no, 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 there was another prophet. I said, yeah, no, I've heard of him. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I said, just polite, I, I'm sorry, yeah, I don't think we're on the same page here. So the creed is sharp enough to exclude and yet strong enough to unify. Maybe a helpful image here is a, a picture up here of a, of a wagon wheel. You'll see the spokes of the wheel, the more they move away from the center, the farther they get from one another. And that's kind of like us. Every church, every stream of the body of Christ, there are distinctives about it. And there are gifts from it. There are distinctives to the Pentecostal charismatic stream. There are distinctives to the Catholic stream. There are distinctives to all of these streams, and they all bring different gifts to the body of Christ. And the more we focus on how different we are, the farther we get from one another. But the more we move toward the center and we say, what is at the center? What unites us? What is the thing that we all hold? And we say, oh yeah, it's the Father, it's the Son, it's the Holy Spirit. And you say, right. And there we are. The closer you get to the center, the closer you get to one another. 
That's why the creed can be an instrument of unity. But the creed can also be an outline of theology. Early on, one of the church fathers in the the early second century began to develop a rule of faith. Rule as in pattern. You know when you teach kids how to write, you have them trace their letters? There's like this dotted line thing, and they trace it, and they trace A, B, you know, one whole line of A, one whole line of B. And they're tracing the letters. That's the idea of a pattern of faith. We say the words of this creed to say, this is how I learn the alphabet of faith. This is how I start to develop this. I start to trace it over and over again. This is what we believe. This is what we believe. And all of a sudden, it comes out of you. It's an outline of theology. Now, I know, right away, some of you are like, blah, 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 theology. Maybe you care about such things, Mr. Nerdy Preacher Guy, but I don't care about theology. In fact, Glenn, who needs theology? I just love Jesus. I just love Jesus. And he loves me. And that's great. Never lose that heart. No, seriously, never lose the simplicity of childlike faith. That's right on. But there's a sense in which we're meant to grow up and learn a bit more. Now, it's a little bit like nutrition. If I put this picture up there, so here's a nutritious meal for you. There's some salmon with black pepper, and there's some spinach and tomatoes and all of this stuff. Now you say, oh, look, I don't know what makes a healthy meal or not. Just give it to me. Just cook it for me, and I'll eat it. Okay, great. True or false, you can benefit from a nutritious meal without knowing why it's benefiting you. True or false? True. You can. But if you want to learn to cook for yourself and develop a habit of healthy eating and healthy living, you're going to have to learn a few principles of nutrition. You're going to have to learn why GMO food may not be the best for you. It's not. (laughs) And you're going to have to learn what are the principles of nutrition and why is goldfish not one of the five food groups? That's what my kids want to know. Theology is a bit like that. You can benefit from good theology. It can nourish your faith without understanding why. But if you want to begin to grow and and feed yourself, you're going to have to learn a little bit about what makes theology good versus bad. And here's the thing. All of us have theology. The only question, right, is whether it's a good one or a bad one. Everybody has a way of thinking about God. That's what Christian Smith's survey of America's teens discovered. Everybody has a view of God. It's just whether it's a good one or not. And so that's what the creed helps us grapple with. Thirdly, a creed, the creed is like a guide in uncertainty. It's it's a way to sort of help us. Uh, How many of you hiked a 14er this summer? Anybody? Good for you. Look at you guys. Yeah, man. How many of you hiked more than one 14er this summer? Goodness gracious, what is the matter with you? Okay, I've hiked one 14er in my whole life, and um, it was the summer that I moved here because I didn't know any better, and uh, there's a group of people doing Pikes Peak, and I said, sure, I'll go along. I mean, how, how hard can it be? Well, let me tell you. But I am so grateful that I was not the first person on the bar trail. I'm, I'm so grateful there actually was a trail. See, someone has done, had done this before. Someone cleared away the thicket and the brush and and, and trod down the ground so that there was a clear path. That's what the creed is like. Someone sorted through the the pitfalls, the errors, the heresies about ways to think about the Father or the Son or the Spirit. Someone cleared through the stuff and made a trail for us. Now it can help us find the way. Now, Joey, if you'd grab one end of this rope here and then 
let's see. Uh, man, you, why don't you come up here? Yeah, and then and grab this end and hold it high. Yeah, you're tall. That's great. Yeah, hold it high. Now, the last time I used this uh, rope for climbing up an ice mountain. Just kidding, guys. I've never used this rope. <laughs> man, you, you were going with me. I appreciate that. Um, there's an episode of Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> which is more my vein, um, a Christmas episode where there's a blizzard happening and they say, Pa, you better put the rope up to the barn. Anyone remember this, right? And, uh, and you say, well, what does that mean? Now, my father-in-law is a farmer in Iowa and, and he does it kind of old school. And the stories go that in the Midwest in particular, storms would blow up and it could be pretty brutal. And, and, and if you, even though it was a familiar trek from house to barn you would forget how to find your way home if you couldn't see. And it would be so blind, and you could walk a sur- the same little spot in circles over and over again and get lost and, and, and die off there. So you needed the rope to help you grab onto it and to say, oh, the wind's blowing, whoa, I can't see, but man, I'm going to find my way home. And that's what the creed can do. Maybe early on in the time of the first disciples, it was like, we remember what Jesus taught. We were there. But now here we are 2,000 years later, and someone says, well, you know what I believe about judgment. Well, you know what I believe about the end times. Well, you know what I believe. About, you know, and, and we say, well, where, how do I know what's true? Where, where is it? I've got to find my way home again. And the creed kind of functions like that. Thank you, gentlemen. So I want us to take these phrases bit by bit, and I want to spend a particular amount of time on the first three words. We believe in. Now, if we were at the council today, and it wasn't at Nicaea, but it was at Boston, in Boston or New York or San Francisco or something like that, the words would not be we believe in, would they? It might be these three words, I know that. It might not be we believe in, it might be I know that. Now, what's the difference between we believe in and I know that? The first word, we. We invites us to join the story of the church. We is a word that invites us to come into the great drama of redemption. We invites us into the faith that is being shared by Christians all around the world. Isn't it amazing when, I, I, when ISIS goes to kill Christians, they're not saying, oh, are you Pentecostal? Are you Calvinist? How many points? Three? Four? Are you, follow- are you people of the cross? You followers of the way? And we forget that we're part of a big story. A difficult story, but a story that's been going on throughout the centuries. Sometimes We've put so much emphasis on the individual I, me, that we start to think that my faith means I have to personally validate and verify every line of the creed. And so someone says, well, I'm having a bad stretch. I'm in a bit of a funk. I'm going through some doubt. I'm not sure about the virgin birth and the, and the resurrection. I'm just, I, I'm, I mean, I want to believe it. I want to, but I just I find my faith weak, and I'm resting, and I don't know what to think about judgment. 
The unintended consequence of emphasizing personal faith, personal faith, personal faith, is then the person says, well, my little me faith is not enough to believe, therefore I'm out. What I always tell people who are seeking, when they're honest enough to tell me about their doubts, what I always tell them is, would you be willing to wrestle through your doubts while coming to confess faith with the church? Would you be willing to wrestle with your doubts right here with the people of God? Because the little eye of faith is sometimes not strong enough that you can be carried by the great we of faith of the church. You can take your place within it and say, help me, be like a buoy to my faith. Give me buoyancy, lift it up even when I'm in doubt. The very worst thing to do when you're going through a time of doubt, and it's in, I think for many of us it's going to happen, the very worst thing to do is to say, you know what, I'm just, I can't go to church anymore. I'm not going to go to church. I'm not even sure if I believe it, so I don't want to be a hypocrite, so I'm not going to go to church. I'm going to go climb another 14er, and I'm going to just seek truth for myself. And when I can come back and personally verify everything about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then I will be ready to return to church because I don't want to be fake. And I think that's the very worst thing we can do. I think what we need to do is say, God, like the man who prayed, says, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. The little eye of faith is small, but can I be wrapped in the great we of the faith? Can I remember that when I say we believe, I'm joining my faith to the faith of the martyrs all around the world. I'm joining my faith to the faith of Luther and Calvin and Cranmer and Aquinas and Anselm and Augustine and Paul and Peter. And even when my faith feels frail, thank God I join a great company that says we believe. Amen? That's the difference. Second word, believe versus know. Something in us wants certainty, scientific certainty. I want to be able to measure it, prove it, demonstrate it. Now listen, I want to be careful with this. I don't think our faith is irrational. I don't think faith and science are incompatible. Neither do I think of faith and science as totally separate things. I think in many ways they overlap and, 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 can, and can interlock. But I don't think we'll ever get to the point where you have so much certainty that you no longer need faith. Actually, it's because you don't have certainty that you do need faith. You'll never say, oh, I can prove it. I can demonstrate it. I've got all the arguments. I've, I've learned it. Once you have faith, you can then begin to understand. In fact, it was Anselm that said, faith-seeking understanding. God, I believe, now help me to understand why I believe these things. That's great. But it's not the same as saying, I need proof, I need certainty, I need to know. And then once I know, then I'll see about believing. Now the creed says, would you, would you surrender in a kind of faith that comes even before certainty? Hebrews 11, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. But it's not just faith, this third word, we believe in. Again, if we were writing this, we might even say we believe that. What's the difference between that? We believe that. I believe that two plus two equals four. Great. We believe in has the posture of worship. It's the posture of intimacy. It's saying, I'm in you, Lord. It's the difference between saying, I believe that that cable that runs across Niagara Falls, I believe that it is strong enough for someone to walk a tightrope across it. I believe that. I believe in says, okay, I'm going. 
I'm on it. I'm stepping on it. We believe in is to say, I'm not distant from you, God. This isn't a God that's, I believe that. I believe in. James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. It requires more than a mental assent to this. Yeah, 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 I believe that God is the Father. No, I believe in. I'm placing my life in. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. Let's take a few of these phrases. One God. This was the early Christians' way of saying that Christianity grew out of the fulfillment of Judaism. And so they're playing off of the Jewish creed, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart and soul, the Shema. Now, When they began, they said, look, we believe in that. We're holding to that same kind of monotheism. There is one God. And then they say, the Father. Now, we know this isn't a gender claim because God is beyond and above whatever sort of understandings we might have of the categories of gender. That this, what is being communicated here is that he's the source, the author, the beginner of it all. And yet, we ought not diminish the fact that the New Testament specifically names him as Father. We can't ignore that. And I think one of the the reasons that is significant is because Paul says this God is not just the Father of creation, but he's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember where Paul says that? He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever met a person that you liked, and then you met their dad? You're like, I feel like I already know I think I experienced that. My dad experienced that a couple years ago when my parents moved here. You guys, you know, generally like me, right? Maybe. Don't answer. And, um, and so you, you welcomed them. And I love it, you know, when people just talk about my dad for now as a, because it relates to the father thing in the sermon. When people come to me and they say, man, I love your dad. Your dad is so great. He's so, you know, da, 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 da. I think, yeah, that's true. And I wonder if it's helpful to think not of your physical father, but to think of the father of Jesus. So you love Jesus. Oh, I love Jesus. Jesus is a good guy. A lot of people are like, oh, I think Jesus, you know. Have you met his dad? Because the father of our Lord Jesus Christ is amazing. Everything you love about Jesus, you love about the father. We believe in one God, the father, the almighty This is a way of saying he's all-powerful, he's sovereign, nothing is outside of his domain and dominion, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. Why this great effort to say all this? Jews believed in the Old Testament that heaven was sort of God's space, earth was human space, but there were moments where those spaces interlocked. The temple was one of those spaces. But they believed that all the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? Isaiah said, I see the Lord in his glory. And then he goes on, he says, the whole earth is full of his glory. For the Old Testament, for the, for, for the Jewish faith, the God of heaven was also the God of earth. But why this need to say seen and unseen? Marcion, who we've already talked about, had a version of Greek philosophy called Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism goes way back, but Marcion had a different version of it in the early centuries, and Marcion's version was this, that 
There's essentially two gods, and the god of the earth and matter was fine, but the god of the spirit was the one that was more, the god of the unseen. And this was consistent with a stream of Greek thought that valued the unseen above the seen. And so there's going to be a hierarchy of, of stuff, and the hierarchy is that the unseen is better. And, and the, the early Christians were saying, no, 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 all of it is God's. All of it is God's. There's only one God. He's the sovereign over all. Only one sovereign God who's the source and creator of all reality. Material world, all of that. Now you say, well, Glenn, I mean, the Marcion stuff, all that, I mean, that's pretty cool, but that, that's not us. We're not living in that world. No, but you know what we are living in the pieces of, the remnants of? We're living in the leftovers of enlightenment, rationalism. That was the era in, in Europe where they basically said, let's relegate God to the attic. Sure, there's a God, but he's upstairs. He doesn't answer prayer. He doesn't intervene. Does these, you know. And let's elevate reason to run the world. And if we could get the right amount of human reason, we can discover the perfect system of government. We can, discover, we, we can, we can fix this. If we just ele- we, we can relegate God to the attic and elevate reason to run the world. That's our version of saying, God, you get the unseen, you get heaven, we'll take earth. But there's a problem with selective faith. It doesn't work like that. Sometimes people say, well, I, 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 want, I want to believe in the God who like, forgives my sins and will take me to fly away to heaven, but I don't really know about a God who really makes claims about how I live and who I befriend and how I spend my money and how I vote and, and whether or not I speak up. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want a God that makes claims of my life. But he's a God who does because he's the Lord over all, all of it. All of it, the maker of heaven and earth. This is why Christians say life from the womb to the tomb, it's sacred because God's the source of it. So I don't get to separate my faith from current affairs. I don't get to divide it up to, well, I I like this sort of stuff. I like the the heaven stuff. Don't make me think about what it actually means for now. No, 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 no. You, you, You actually don't get to choose. The invitation to faith is an invitation to total surrender. Total surrender. The invitation to faith is one that says, okay, all right, I give up. I'm yours. You're the one. And here's the thing. You're going to put your faith in something. You're going to put your faith in something. Years ago, Phil Collins wrote a song for the Tarzan movie. The opening line, put your faith in what you most believe in. And he goes on in one world, two families. He's talking about, and it's sort of like, it's cool, it's Phil Collins, it's poppy, you know, but, but what does that even mean? Put your faith in what you most believe in. So, okay, so I most believe in myself. Put my faith in self. Put my faith in my career. Put my faith in life. Put my faith in family. I'll put my faith in fa- None of that is good enough, is it? And the early Christians want to say, you're going to put your faith in something. Would you begin by putting your faith in the maker of heaven and earth? Isaiah, our Old Testament reading this morning, says he's the God who called out the stars, marched them up. This is the God who holds galaxies in his hand, who orders the universe, who said to the oceans, come thus far and no more. This is the God who ordered the world. And then Mary's song in the gospel reading, reading, this is the God who bends down and lifts up the lowly. 
This is the who is like our God. See, this morning, I'm not here to preach to you the creed. I'm here to preach to you about the God of the creed. And it begins with the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. So my prayer for you is like Paul's. Paul said in Ephesians 3, For this reason I bow, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I want you to know something that you can't possibly fully know, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God.